basically the four ministers of this congregation. Turn to the roundtable discussion this evening uh, to spend the next few weeks uh, engaging in this format. If you've never been a part of this before, this is simply the four ministers of this congregation gathering together on Sunday night, and we will uh, do a Bible study where we each engage in the study collectively and, and, and uh, share our, our thoughts as we go along and uh, pro provide a unique forum-style study uh, for you and for us as well. We are excited because we are introducing a new study tonight, a study of the book of 1 John. We're going to spend the summer on Sunday nights examining 1 John. Now, 1 John is not a long book. It's only five chapters. Uh, and we will cover essentially one chapter a night. We've got a couple of Sundays mixed in where we will be doing uh, some different things. But we are focusing on 1 John for this summer. And we're excited to do it because we love, we love just getting into a book and working our way through it. We try to mix in some other uh, topics and some other studies because we want to keep it fresh, but this is what we love. This is what we introduced the roundtable with was a study of the book of Titus, and we did a study of the book of James, and we did a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now we're turning our attention to 1 John. And every time we do a, a book study, what we like to do is start off with an introduction to the book. And there are always four key categories that we, we look at with each with each book we study. We want to examine who the author is. We want to ex examine who the recipients or the audience is. We want to examine uh, when it was written and, and the circumstances around its writing. And finally, we also want to examine its purpose. And so as we get started tonight, we're going to do that. And we're going to start by asking Ben to uh, uh, tell us a little bit about who is the author of First John. done that with most of the books we've ever studied. We want to know who wrote it, where we have a better understanding of why they wrote what they wrote, a better understanding of what they are trying to get across with what they do write. When you look at some of the epistles uh, in the New Testament, most of the epistles actually, uh, will just come right out and say who wrote it. Paul will usually say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and James will say, James, the bondservant. Of, the, of Jesus Christ, and others will say just straight out right at the beginning, the first few verses, hey, this is me, I'm writing this. And, but that's not the case with 1 John. And so it is important for us to kind of look at this and to talk about who the author is. And to do that, we have to look at the very first verse. Though it doesn't say who wrote it, it does give us an indication of a very short list of people who it could apply to. Verse 1, we'll read this again in a minute. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And it continues to use these personal uh, pronouns of, of talking about them, the people uh, that were there who were able to see, who were able to hear, who were able to touch the word of life. Jesus, we're going to talk about in a minute. So this could only apply to who? Well, those who were there in the ministry of Jesus. The apostles, the 12 original apostles who were there that 
could claim these different things, these eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. And when we study authorship of any book, we look at two different things. We look at the external evidence, and we look at the internal evidence. When we look at the external evidence, we're asking, what did the people in the time that it was written say about this book? What do the people who were written shortly, who, who lived shortly after the writing of this book, what did they say about it? What did they say who wrote this book? And then we also look at internal evidence, and that's what we can find within the book itself, within the writing itself, to see if there's any clues or, or, or any things that we can take away from to know, oh, that had to have been you fill in the blank. And so we look at the external evidence of this book, and the external evidence is almost 100% in favor that John the Apostle wrote this book. You know, it's not a shocker. We look at the book, we open it up, it says First John. All right? But the external evidence tells us that it's most likely 100% the Apostle John that authored this book. And the way we look at this external evidence is we look to see what the church fathers, what the patristic writers had to say. We look at these different individuals like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian and Origen and all these other church fathers and patristic writers who said that the author of this book had to have been John. And then you look at the internal evidence and you have an even stronger case for it being the Apostle John because you look at the Gospel of John and we see so many different themes come over into the epistle of 1 John. So many different themes like love and fellowship and different language that he uses is exactly from the Gospel of John that we can look and compare to 1 John. And so there's a, there's a bit of evidence there. But also you look at the Greek, the Greek structure, the language, the vocabulary used is the exact same from book to book when you compare the two. Also, if you were to look at the beginning of our text tonight and compare it with John chapter 1, when he talks about Jesus being the Word, when he talks about that which we have seen, that which we have beheld, these different things that he's about to say we're going to read are exact different parallels from what we see in the Gospel of John. So it simply makes the most sense, and it is absolutely certain that John was the author of this book. And so we can deduce from that, because we have strong external evidence, because we have even stronger internal evidence, that we can be certain when we engage in this study that we're talking about the Apostle John who wrote this book. I think now we're going to talk about who he wrote it to. Yeah, so the second question you always want to ask after, you know, trying to answer who wrote the book, the second one is, okay, well, who did he write it to, or who did they write it to? And so with that, there's almost even less said in the book of 1 John of the audience, or the people who are going to be reading this, uh, reading this letter, this encouragement. And in fact, along with James and the works of uh, Peter's, uh, Peter's letters and, and Jude, what we have is kind of the universal letters what we have is kind of this group of letters that don't have an, a, a specific audience mentioned within their, within their work. And so they're kind of written to more to be passed around to different congregations, more to be used in a universal way, to be passed around the greater areas for these new groups of Christians. And so, kind of like Ben said, we, when we look at the external evidence, you have an idea of who John was writing this text to. And that is to Asia Minor, to the churches in Asia Minor, specifically those congregations around Ephesus. 
speaking in Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria, he's the main one that kind of gives us an idea that not only was he living and working in Ephesus during the, towards the end of his life, but he was ministering heavily around the congregations around that area. So we have an idea that when he's writing this to the little children, the people that he is ministering almost to as a father to them, as he calls them little children multiple times throughout the text, we have an idea that he's talking about the congregations around Ephesus, those in Asia Minor, that's going to be passed around in that section. So there's not much to be added when it comes to who he wrote it to. We just know that it was passed around in the area that one of some of the first uh, documented uses of this letter is in Asia Minor, the, the area around Ephesus itself. So that's the idea that we have where he was writing it to in the first place. All right, another thing we want to know about any, any given letter as we start studying it is, is when it was written, because that can help, help you understand a little bit of the circumstances going on at that time. John, with all of the works that he's accredited for, for writing, whether it be his gospel or these three, First John and the other two epistles that he wrote, as well as the book of Revelation, all of them are attributed to the end of the first century. Particularly John's gospel and the three epistles that he wrote are typically dated somewhere in the uh, mid-80s to, to mid-90s, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, in particular with 1 John, what is worth considering is, did he write that, that letter before he wrote his gospel or after he wrote his gospel? And it is generally believed that the gospel of John was John's first work because he produced it with the intent of, uh, of leading people to, uh, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That was the ultimate purpose of his gospel. When you get to 1 John, the, 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 he's not trying to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. He's trying to encourage people to live faithfully. And so it seems that that is an indication that 1 John would have followed the gospel of John. But somewhere in that 80 to 95 range is the broad category assigned to the date at the end of the first century when he would have written this. And there's evidence of... Uh, early um, patristic fa uh, fathers quoting John by about 110 A.D., so we know that it had circulated by that time, and, and so therefore we can have a pretty good date in the, in the 80s, generally speaking, at the end of the first century when First John would have been written. And that leads us to the last thing that we really want to talk about with the introduction, and that's the purpose of First John, and Mingu's going to dive into that for us. Okay, the purpose of the uh, book of the Bible is very important because it, is, it works as a navigator of the book. If we don't uh, take a wrong purpose of a book, then we will read the book to fit our wrong idea of the purpose of the book. So to get the right you know, purpose of the book is very important for us to understand the book and to get the a best understanding of the book of the Bible. So, you know, uh, not uh, not all books uh, are easy to find the purpose of the book, but uh, this one is pretty easy because we have the language here, uh, uh, like so that uh, chapter one verse three says that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have uh, fellowship with us. So, so that indicates the purpose and the purpose of the proclaiming those, the, the facts and the, you know, uh, the teachings and the ideas uh, that the author got from Jesus was to uh, 
help us to have the fellowship, help the leaders to have the fellowship with us. I mean, in his language, us. So having uh, the, I mean, to know the way uh, how we can have the fellowship with them is the purpose. And verse 4 also has the so that, uh, you know, sentence. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So I think this is the ultimate purpose. You know, here, us, I, I take we as apostles, God, and the Son of God. I mean, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, they are in a fellowship, in the fellowship, and if we get into that fellowship, and if we have the fellowship with them, then that completes their joy. I mean, God's joy, Jesus' joy, and the apostles' joy. In other words, the church's joy. So that is the ultimate purpose. So uh, having joy could be inter uh, interpreted into glorifying God. So probably I can say that you know, uh, the ultimate purpose of this writing is to glorify God. How? By helping the readers to get into the fellowship with God, Jesus, and the apostles. In other words, the church. And other, then the next question, how? How can, we, how can we have the fellowship? Or how can we get into the fellowship? Chapter 2, verse 1 has also uh, one other uh, so that sentence. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. By not sinning, you know, by not keeping on sinning, we can have the fellowship. Uh, before we uh, get into the uh, status that we are not sinning, we have to resolve the uh, problem of the sin or the guilt of the sins that we have committed. So this book will also talk about how we can resolve the, I mean, solve the problem of the sin or guilt of the sin that we have committed. And then this book will also give us the idea how can walk uh, in this life without sinning. So that is the purpose. And finally, one other <clears throat> sentence we can find regarding implying uh, the purpose of the book is I think, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. 513 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have uh, eternal life. Here, th that sentence is also the same. Uh, it's very, I mean, the same in function and functionality with the so that sentence. And this indicates the purpose. And I'm, he says, I'm, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. But this sentence uh, is talking to specifically to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, who came into the fellowship with God, Son of God, I mean, Jesus and the apostles. So uh, uh, this sentence, a 
applies to the one who accepted the gospel and obeyed the gospel. But in generally, uh, in general, the purpose of this book is what I said already. I mean uh, earlier that you know how we can get into the fellowship, how we can uh, you know resolve the problem problem of sin. Uh, so uh, that is the purpose of this book. So I think the study of the book of John uh, is very, very significant, not only for those who have not obeyed the gospel, but also for those who have obeyed the gospel. So for all of us, I think this book will uh, give us uh, a great benefit. Now we're going to turn our attention to the text. Uh, so if you will, uh, if you're not there already, we're going to read 1 John chapter 1. We're going to focus on the first four verses. And just so you know, the first four verses of John in Greek are a horrible run-on sentence. And, and, and it's just all gathered together, and you've got to figure out where to make breaks in it. But it's this beautiful statement that John is making uh, and we'll explain, we'll talk about it more in just a moment, but it's a, it's a beautiful, deep um, observation by John as he gets started here with this letter. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I want to start off with this question tonight. What is he talking about? What is the word of life? What is he making reference to? And let me jump over to, to Jay and have him get us started with this. What, what, is, what is John referring to here? It was hard to read 1 John in the first four verses and not go back to the first chapter of the book of John and read how he talks about the same character here. Um, let's read, if you have your uh, Bibles, uh, back to the Gospel of John, we'll read uh, a few verses Verses 1 through 3 and then down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that, was, that, that has come into being. We'll read verse 4. Excuse me. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's reread verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, that what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. When we read the book of John, it's clear who he's talking about. The capital H, the character, the man of Jesus that he's talking about, the word who, who put on flesh, who's manifested into a bodily form. And now this catchphrase, this phrase, this type of language that John is pioneering, kind of using in John to describe who the man of Jesus is, now he's using it in his epistle of 1 John, knowing everybody almost, they already know who he's talking about. All he has to say is the word of life. And we have the same idea of 
who or what that is. So I believe it comes off pretty clearly of the, the man that he's speaking of here. And, and John uh, rattles off all these different uh, statements about Jesus here. And it, it's that which is from the beginning, that which we've uh, heard, that which we've seen, that which we've looked upon, that which we've touched. And he's giving all these, these little descriptors about almost a personal uh, understanding of who Jesus is. And and uh, what, I, what I find fascinating and what I think would be uh, worth talking about for a moment is, is of all these phrases that John chooses to use here to describe the Word, which one kind of uh, resonates with you? Which one stands out to you? Ben, you want to get started? Yeah, when you look at this uh, explanation of who they're talking, who John is talking about, it's very personal, is it not? Uh, it's, it's coming, as we were talking about, from an eyewitness standpoint, from someone who knew the word the word being jesus the word of life this writer john knew jesus and like kyle was talking about these different descriptors think about how encouraged first of all before we talk about the descriptors think about how encouraging it would be to those christians who maybe had not seen jesus who maybe had not touched Jesus, who maybe had not heard Jesus speak on the Sermon on the Mount, think how encouraging it would be that for those young Christians or perhaps those uh, Gentile Christians who were reading this to hear that, hey, this isn't just a story. Hey, this, this, this Jesus who we talk about was real. He was manifested in the flesh. He became man and dwelt among us. He was such a man that we beheld His glory, that we touched Him. My translation says, uh, our hands have handled. Jesus was that person. Think how encouraging it would be to hear from John, from one of these other uh, apostles who were there from the beginning, how encouraging it would be to a new Christian or to a convert, to know that, hey, this isn't a fairy tale. Jesus wasn't just somebody that was made up. No, this man touched him. He heard him. He saw him with his own eyes. But to me, if you think about, personally, the, the most impactful, the most significant uh, descriptor to me, I think, would be when he says, our hands have handled. Our hands have handled. You know, it's one thing to be able to see Jesus. Uh, many people saw Jesus. In fact, we know that thousands of people would follow Jesus through the streets and try to hear what he had to say. He would turn them away sometimes. Thousands of people were able to see Jesus, but very few were able to perhaps touch him, or very way less than those who saw him were able to touch him or able to actually be that close to Jesus and think about John from his perspective when we're talking about handling Jesus, touching Jesus. Jesus washed his feet. Jesus had such a relationship with John that he fed him the Lord's Supper. That's pretty significant, isn't it? And again, think how encouraging that would be to hear as a new Christian or a new convert, 
decades later in the church to hear this man writing this. Jesus washed his feet. This man writing this watched Thomas touch his hands into Jesus' wrist and into his side. That's how personal John is talking about uh, Jesus in this passage. So I, I, I really uh, wish and I look forward to the day where I can touch Jesus. And I can be like John and have that relationship that John has. You know, you, you talk about how many people saw Jesus and you're right, a lot more saw him than touched him. But I am intrigued by, by hearing John say, uh, refer to Jesus as the one that I've seen with my own eyes. Because I think about, I, I try to contemplate, okay, what all did John see? Specifically John, because there are lots of people did physically see Jesus, but, but John got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. John got to be there when Jesus went through that whole process. John observed that. John also was there when the nails went through his hands. Of all the apostles, John's the only one that we know of that stood close enough to converse with Jesus as he hung on the cross. And he saw the blood dripping down. And he saw the wounds that were inflicted. And he saw the pain and the agony and the expressions on Jesus' face. He saw the people spit on him. He was there not only at the crucifixion, he was there when Jesus was on trial in Caiaphas' house. He was there to witness those things. And he was there when that tomb was empty. He's one of two apostles that ran to the tomb and that stooped down and looked inside and saw it empty. And he was there on multiple occasions to see the resurrected Jesus. You think about all the things that John saw and how you wouldn't want to see those things too. You would, how, how desperate... How, how much would you benefit from having seen Jesus walk on water or having seen Jesus feed 5,000 people or more importantly, having seen Jesus alive after he had been dead? And John saw all those things and now he's a witness to those things and everything he has to say about Jesus carries weight because he saw those things. He touched him, he saw him, and so on. So I'm impacted by hearing John say that which we have seen, because it reminds me of just what John himself saw with his own eyes. Guys, are there any other phrases in this uh, Christological passage that, that stand out to you, that resonate with you, that carry weight with you? apostles who witnessed with their eyes to John, I mean Jesus concluded that he is the word of life. He is the word of life. So what it, what it uh, really impacts me is that that's the revelation of the life, eternal life. Uh, according to John's language, in, chapter, in verse 2, he says, the life was made manifest. It was manifesto. It was manifestation of the life. And also, um, you know, uh, another one is in the, at the last uh, 
part of the verse 2, was made manifest to us. So the word means what was manifested to us through Jesus Christ. And as they saw it, as they, you know, touched it, as they heard it, and as they, you know, uh, slept with it, they concluded that it was the, you know, word of life. In other words, that was the manifestation of the life that God wanted to give us. So that's really fascinating. I mean, um, Jesus' word, actually, what he said was not the was not the word of life, but he lived. What he thought, what he did, was also the word of life. And the life he lived on earth was itself word of life. And how he lived on this earth in the flesh was the word of life. It teaches me that, uh, it teaches me the idea that I can be the word of life. You know, if I live like Jesus now in 21st century in the United States, wow, I can be the word of life. You can be the word of life if you live like Jesus in this century, in this time, in your community, you will be the word of life. And people will see the life in you that you received from God. So you, will be, you can be the word of life. So that's, that idea is very uh, you know, fascinating and also uh, uh, compare, uh, compares me to live in a certain way that I can be recognized as the word of life. I'm not saying that I can, I can do that, but if I try my best, then at least I can you know, draw some very good picture, which, can, which may tell people that this is the way that we can have life. So this also gives us a very I mean, great encouragement about how we have to live. So, word of life is a kind of a, you know, great idea for us to get. All right. Let's move on to the, the next section of chapter 1. That's verses uh, 5 through 10. And this isn't a very uh, long section, but it is incredibly deep. There are some powerful statements here in this section. So let's begin reading in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
As we look at this section, the, the question I kind of want to pose tonight is, is what do we learn from, from what John says in this section? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about salvation? What do we learn about discipleship? What do we learn about the church? Whatever it might be, what, what do we learn in this passage? Anybody want to go first? Okay. Go ahead. Um, I, mean, I found a very interesting uh, grammar here. You know, uh, chapter, uh, verse 6, 7, uh, and 8, and 9, and 10. All, probably all verses have, uh, you know, if we say, if we walk, and if we say again, if we confess, if we say. In English, all sentences are in present tense, but in Greek, they are different. Uh, if we say is a uh, aorist active, and if we walk in verse seven is present active, and uh, verse eight if we say is aorist active, and verse nine uh, present active, and verse ten aorist active. Uh, aorist is known as a tense that is something prior or earlier than present, uh, present. So uh, at least we can get the idea from aorist tense that something happened already. So if, uh, if we get that idea into our understanding, verse seven uh, example is if we have said, I mean, if we uh, have walked uh, no, no, no. Uh, verse 7 is in present active, but uh, uh, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, it can be like we, if we have said we have no sin, but uh, if, we, uh, if we, I mean, like that. Um, you know, uh, what I'm trying to say is that John is trying to point out that what you say or what you have said is different what you are doing. That is wrong. But if, if you say something and also if you are doing it, that is right. So I think, um, you know, I have language barrier here. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's not easy to uh, explain it. But the point is that what we say, if what we say is not uh, being seen by, uh, in what we do or how we live, John is saying it is wrong. We are making God a liar. So uh, even if we say that we are saved or we are doing right, something like that, but when people see, or when God sees that uh, I'm not doing right, then that's the problem. That's what John is pointing out, I think. So, uh, what we believe is not, uh, does, um, what we believe is not what matters for our salvation. But what, is re uh, what does really matter for our salvation is 
what we do now, how we live now. Even if we said something, even if we say uh, something that we did right in righteousness, if we don't do right right now, what we believe we did in the past in righteousness doesn't matter at all for our salvation. So what we do, how we live now, is the most significant thing for our salvation. I think that is what we can uh, get here uh, through the grammatical study. Guys? You know, Mingyu, I appreciate you doing that. I appreciate that you just took on one of the finer points of the Greek language as a Korean minister in English. (laughs) So I would have had a hard time explaining that, and you did a good job doing that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. One of the things, one of the, a couple of things that I find interesting in this passage is the, uh, the silliness of verse 6 and when it comes to what it sounds like when we do that. Not the text, but when we, when we do this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. That's such a simple truth. That's such a simple statement. But that might be one of the most prevalent sins in all of Christianity. People who say, well, I, I, I walk with God, I have a relationship with God, but... Full, with full knowledge that their life does not reflect that. Or, not, maybe, they don't, maybe they don't outright deny or outright um, diminish that they, they're living a terrible life, but they just diminish the sins that they do have. I have a relationship with God, and the things I do, they're not, they're not that bad. You know, I ask myself if, if I've ever said verse 8 and 10, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we have not sinned, when I read this passage, okay, well, I've never done that. I've never thought as Jay Hall I could ever say the statement, I have never sinned. I've never thought, I, I, I've never said I, I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned in my life. But I think we all could sit up here and we could all agree that we have diminished. We haven't outright denied, but we've diminished the sins in our lives. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice with the truth. Having a relationship with God it's a twofold, twofold thing of complete acceptance of not only that I am a sinner, but the severity of the sinner that I am. And having a full acceptance and a full recognition of the type of person I am, and then I'm trying to do the best I can. Not diminishing anything, but owning it in the sense that I need to be better and to do better. You know, I thought about how silly it would be if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness. For someone to say, I have a relationship with God, that might could fool some people around him. I thought about if, if before I proposed to Hannah, when we were just dating, if I just told people Hannah's my wife, I probably could convince people. You know, if I were just walking in the grocery store and Hannah and I were dating and someone is this your wife, I could have said, yes, she is. But would, would that have any truth to it? Would that have any weight to it? I may have been, been able to convince the people around me at certain times that we were married, but we weren't. And just like right now, if I walk in and I can profess being a Christian, I can tell people, I can maybe convince people around me that I'm a Christian by saying, by acting a certain way. But at the end of the day, if I'm not, if I don't actually have that relationship with God through obedience and through the vow that I make to Him, right? Then then it's silly. It means nothing at all. I might be able to convince myself, the people around me, but I'll never be able to convince God, the only one that it actually matters to that I have fellowship with him if I'm, if I'm also walking in the darkness. So I'll, I'll give you a couple other shots since we're running out of time before I, I say my last thoughts. To me, the, the, there's, there's two things that I 
want to talk about. I'll talk about one. Um, this, this passage might be the greatest passage to destroy the one-foot-in, one-foot-out mindset that Christians have. Uh, many times Christians want to have one foot in the world and one foot in a church somewhere. And we live and operate in a manner that, hey, I can live and I can talk and I can act like the world over here, but if, as long as I'm wearing a suit and tie, and like Jay was talking about, as long as I convince the other people around me that everything's good, then I'm, I'm in the light. And the fact of the matter is, uh, John says, verse 5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness, and he doesn't stop there, at all. It's, it's emphatic. It, there is no darkness at all. And so when we try to have one foot in the world and one foot in, in God and in the church and uh, among the fellowship here, we're not in God. We're not in the church because our foot is in the world. Uh, if, if, there, if you are, have a foot in the darkness, then you're not in God because God has no darkness. And so when I look at this text, it's, it's kind of like Jay was saying, it's ridiculous to think that you can be with God, that you can have this eternal life, verse, three by, uh, excuse me, verse 2, by the way, that eternal life which was with the Father has now been manifested to us if you want that eternal life that God has manifested through His Son, then how ridiculous is it to think that you can get that light with having a foot in the world? You cannot have a foot in the world and a foot in the light. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus would say. And so it's, it's challenging for us to think about this lightness and darkness. If you are in the dark at all, then you are not in the light. If you are not having both feet with God, if you are touching that darkness, if you are flirting with that darkness, if you are having this side relationship with the darkness, then you're not fooling anyone but yourself. You're definitely not fooling God. And even if you convince people of your entire life that you were one way, God will know which way you were. God will know whether you were in the light or whether you were in the dark. And then second is obviously the verse 7, one of the most popular, one of the most challenging, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Like Jay was saying, it's not, uh, it's not talking about us being perfect. Walking in the light is not us being perfect. Perfect. In fact, if we say that we're perfect, we lie and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, then we're a liar. If we say that uh, we have no need to be cleansed, then the blood of Jesus is not with us and we are deceiving ourselves, the, the passage says. So what does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light if it doesn't mean to be perfect? You know, he talks about it here. Where is that verse? Verse 6. And do not practice the truth. You know, there's a difference between committing sin and practicing sin. When you commit a sin, you have made a mistake. You have transgressed the law. You have trespassed 
God's will. But when you practice a sin, you have made it a habit. You are no longer trying anymore. You are no longer sorry. You do not have godly sorrow producing repentance in your life. You have, not, you have gone from committing it to practicing it. And when you go across that line, you're no longer walking in the light. And when you're no longer walking in the light, you're no longer in the light. And when you're no longer in the light, you no longer get the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. You know, Guy in Woods described it this way. Many heads poked up. No Guy in Woods. He, he talked about verse 7 as being like windshield wipers. You know, we, we, we look at uh, the Christian lifestyle. You asked about salvation. How does this impact our salvation? We look at salvation sometimes as a line in the middle and about every 15 minutes we bounce back and forth between that line. <laughs> every single time that we commit a sin, not practice a sin, every time that we commit a sin and transgress the law, we've crossed the line and we're lost and we need to pray and get back across the line. And while that is a uh, belief that we most, most, most likely have had and most likely have been taught all of our lives, that's just not how the blood of Jesus works. As long as we are walking in the light, trying our dead level best to live according to the way God would want us, you see, because there are sins that we don't know that we commit. If we don't repent of those, does that mean that we're on the other side of the line and we're just toast because God got us? Because we didn't know what we did? No, that's not how God works. The blood of Jesus cleanses us, a guy in wood said, like windshield wipers. As soon as it hits the glass, it's wiped off. As soon as another one hits the glass, it's wiped off. That's how the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of our sins. But the way that we get it to cleanse us of our sins is what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are walking in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Walking in the light does not mean that you are perfect. In fact, it means that you are not. It means that Jesus makes you perfect, and Jesus gives you the light that you're walking in. The problem comes when we act like we are the light, and we don't need the blood. The truth is, if we want the eternal light that he's talking about in verse 2, then we're going to have to walk in the light. And walking in the light, as he is in the light, means we don't have a foot in both camps. Well, thank you, Ben. We are out of time for this evening, so we're going to go ahead and conclude uh, tonight. We will resume this study of 1 John next week. We might even make a few more observations from chapter 1 as we get started next week. But please continue to join us as we study the, the book of 1 John this summer. With that, I'm going to close this out in a word of prayer. So if you would, let's go to God. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this time of study. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here every week and, and spend time in your word and spend time worshiping you and praising you. And we can do this without fear of persecution. And we, we can do this in such a comfortable environment. Lord, we may take that for granted way too often. Forgive us of that and help us to appreciate these blessings more and more every day. Lord, we, we are leaving here now and we're going to be entering our week uh, we're going to be going off to work or, or going off to uh, uh, social events or, or engaging in various activities throughout this week, Lord. And we ask 
for your blessings on us. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light every day. Help us to not be so conceited as to believe that we are incapable of sinning. And help us, Lord, to be willing to confess those sins when we do err. Help us to trust in you, Lord. Help us to follow your lead. Help us to keep your commandments. And may this week be a blessing to us all. We love you, Lord, and it is through your son's name that we pray. Amen.